You can, if you, if you have a Bible, not the, I put all, everything in your outline, so if you don't have a Bible, that's fine, but you can open it to Psalm 140. Thanks for coming on a Sunday night. Um, as Rob said, the weather outside is spectacular, and you could be out there doing something in the spectacular weather. So the fact that you would come here, I'm very, very grateful. Um, as Rob mentioned, we do these Renewing Your Mind meetings to talk about topics that we don't typically get to address, and this one is on abuse, and the title of it is The Bible and Abuse. Now, you got an outline on the way in, and you, you probably started looking at the outline and thought, we are going to be here till, until tomorrow morning. Um, I can promise you we will not be here until tomorrow morning. Uh, I just chose to give you more of an expansive outline than what I typically do. Uh, not only to have the quotes, but it's kind of a a semi-manuscript, much of what I'm going to say is in here, but not all that I'm going to say. So I decided just to give you more, and um, we will uh, move through it uh, at a pretty good clip. Also, uh, at the, on the very last page, there's some resource recommendations, um, and you could, if you want to ask questions about resources, Andy's studied the topic, I'm sure, more than I have, so I just um, put resources that I'm familiar with. He would probably have more um, so just a little bit of, of, of opening comments there. So why, why should we devote a meeting to teach on the issue of abuse? Why this topic? Let me, let me answer that by, by telling you a little bit of a story. On October 22nd, 2022, the Wall Street Journal published an article entitled, Ruth Glenn, a domestic violence survivor, knows the power of sharing stories. Ruth Glenn is the CEO now of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, a nonprofit based in Denver, Colorado. She is also a survivor herself of domestic abuse, which escalated to the point that actually in 1992, her husband shot her twice in the head, and she survived. And he ended up taking his life while on the run from the police. It was about a year later, Ruth in 1993, started volunteering at a nonprofit that serves domestic violence survivors, now known as Violence Free Colorado. The article begins this way. When Ruth Glenn first began working as an advocate for domestic abuse victims and survivors in the early 1990s, she found that most people were too embarrassed to talk public, publicly about their experiences with abuse. Um, intimate uh, partner violence affects one in four women and one in ten men in the U.S. according to the 2020, or excuse me, 2015 survey of the Centers for D Disease Control. But it is often an invisible problem. Ms. Glenn saw that there was a need to bring more of these stories out into the open, including her own. Uh, Ruth Glenn, 62 now, has long found that sharing her story is therapeutic not only for herself, but for other listeners. She said, people kept coming up to me afterwards to say, I'm so glad you said that, because I just can't talk about it yet. Or now I understand what my daughter is going through. How can I help her? See, I share that story because maybe you're here tonight because you have family members or friends who have their own story of past or present, a past or present abusive relationship. And 
you desire, you're here tonight because you desire to understand them better and want to find ways to help them. Jill and I have three people that are very close to us in our lives who either have been or are in an abusive relationship, and that's why I have a heart for this topic. It's one of the reasons that I've studied it. You might be here yourself because you have your own story of abuse. Maybe you were in an abusive relationship in the, in the past, or maybe now even in the present, and you're here trying to understand it from a biblical perspective. Or maybe you're here because right now the, uh, a part of the, this topic of abuse is a part of the cultural conversation, and you want to understand it better biblically. Uh, this, this topic is, is also important for us as a church corporately because we, we do have members of our church that may currently be in or have been in an abusive relationship. And we need to know biblically how to respond to that and how to help them. So regardless of what you're, why you're here tonight, this is what we will cover. The Bible speaks clearly to the issue of abuse by giving us principles to understand it and respond to it and to help others who are experiencing it. So tonight, we're, we're going to do this. This is the flow of the outline. We're going to look at biblical themes that help inform our understanding of the issue of abuse. We will define key terms. We'll talk about, just very briefly, the, some of the dynamics that occur in an abusive relationship, and then we'll end uh, with how some, just some thoughts on how you can potentially help. Now, the definition of key terms is, is really important to accurately define abuse in a culture that uses the terms abuse and victim often without definition and and potentially by overusing those terms in a way that actually can minimize the abuse true victims really experience. Or to say it another way, in a culture of victimhood, we don't want true victims to be marginalized. We want to understand it biblically. So a couple of uh, just general comments. Uh, Throughout this teaching tonight, I'm going to use masculine pronouns for the abuser and feminine pronouns for the victim or the abused because statistically, males are much more likely to perpetuate abuse and females victims. So according to the Bureau of Justice, and that's that's a part of the United States Department of Justice, their statistics show us that over 80% of criminal domestic abuse victims during the period from 1993 to 2011, over 80% of them were female. That doesn't mean that females can't be abusers, and nor do I want to minimize the impact maybe that a man has experienced for his own abuse. I simply am using pronouns that go along with the majority statistic. Here's the second overall thought. I'm, I'm using the term abuse broadly meaning that it captures physical, sexual, domestic abuse that might uh, contain or might include a consistent, harsh, and intentional berating of another person for the purpose of controlling them. Um, You might call that emotional abuse. I'm not quite using that term tonight. I'd rather more speak about what the people are experiencing. So we we will define abuse more clearly in just a few minutes, but I I want you to know I'm, I'm using the term more broadly. Here's what we won't have time to cover. We won't have time to uh, go into detail about the counsel you should give someone in an abusive relationship. That would include questions 
theological questions like, I believe in the sovereignty of God. How do I take my abuse and lay it into that? We, we won't have time to talk about that tonight. That would be a whole separate teaching. We, will, we won't cover how to confront and talk to an abuser. That alone could be a separate teaching. And we won't cover a detailed description of the corporate role of the, of the church because that would be a separate teaching. So this is just a, a basic uh, uh, teaching on the issue of abuse where we're seeking to define it, understand it, and how to help people with it. So a couple of scriptures that I put there in your outline. And the first one is from Psalm 140. And this is really a prayer. It's a prayer of David. And his prayer to God is he is asking to be delivered from evil. Uh, the, The text says violent men. So he's experiencing violence himself. Psalm 140 verses 1 through 5 say, Deliver me, O God, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who, who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They, they make their tongues sharp as serpents, and under their lips is the venom of apps, asps. Guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have planned to trip up my feet. The arrogant have hidden a trap for me, and with cords they have spread a net beside the way They have set snares for me. So that's a prayer. He's asking to be delivered. And there's a call for us in doing justice that we'll talk about in a moment where we might help deliver someone from an abusive situation. Now, I included Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4, because it is that call. Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4 says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So just a couple of um, uh, scriptures, and both from the Psalms. And we're going to look at more scripture tonight to help just kind of frame out um, how we might see abuse in scripture. So let, let's talk about biblical themes. I'm going to move pretty quickly through nine biblical themes that, that shape the terms we will use and in a few moments define um, to help us understand the sinful act of abuse. So first of all, number one, the image of God. All people, you know this, are made in the image of God. I put the longer text in your outline, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, but let's just look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female he created them. We are, we are all made. Every person is made in the image of God. And because of that, every person has dignity and value in God's sight. So the way that God views every person he has created should inform the way that we view every person that we encounter. They are made in the image of God. So any sinful act against another person, including the sin of abuse, is an is an offense to God because he has made all people in his image. And because we hear this truth so often, we hear this truth a lot, especially I think in the last few years, we can become somewhat numb to it and forget that any sin against another person deeply offends God, our holy God, partly because he is the one who has made them in his image. And that should not inform how we view others. It should also inform our understanding, at least in part, why abuse is a sinful act. Which leads to the, next, to the second theme, sin. Sin is, now this is basic, 
But I think it's good to remember, sin is a rebellious act against God and his divine law. Psalm 51 tells us that sin is a, uh, a sin against, is, is against God himself. You know Psalm 51, Nathan confronts David after he commits adultery with Bathsheba, arranges for the murder of Uriah. He's convicted and he says in those verses, against you, meaning God, against you and you only have I sinned. So sin is primarily against God, even though we do sin against other people and we do sin against them. Sin is also a rebellious act against, that, that breaks God's divine law. One proof text for that, 1 John 3, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. We are not, we are not following God's law. Paul writes something very similar in his letter to the Romans, chapter 3, verse 24, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since... Through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we, we, we know we sin because of God's law, and we, we break God's law. Sin is a rebellious act against God and his divine law. And because of that, we have full responsibility for our sin. That's kind of what James is saying in, in James chapter 1. When you're tempted, you can't say somebody else like God is tempting you because those evil desires, they are in your heart, and you are responsible for your sins. So I won't read those verses, but I'm sure that you know them. So this truth that we are responsible for our sinful acts is important for us all, but especially important for this topic tonight, because the act of abuse is sinful. It's sinful because abusers who abuse others disrespect those made in God's image And if the abuser is a Christian, they certainly break God's command to love one another. Now, this category of sin is is also important because abusers typically don't take responsibility for their actions. That's pretty typical in an abuser. It's a profile of abuser. Rather, they blame shift. They point the finger to those who are being abused, tell them it's, it's their fault, and they're trying to use their guilt to, against them to, to control them. And that, that's just a warped sense of understanding about one's own heart. Sin, it, it distorts all of creation, including our ability to relate to one another in love as God designed. Which leads to the third theme, oppression. Now, oppression is used consistently throughout Scripture, mostly more a little bit more in the Old Testament, to describe the sin of those with greater capacity or power, using it sinfully against those with less capacity or power. Uh, so you see that in, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 9. It says, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel who are enslaved in Egypt, the, the, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, meaning God, the, God, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So Pharaoh oppressed God's people, using his power to enslave them. Um, You see a similar thing in Job chapter 35, verse 9. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. So the arm of the mighty describes someone who has influence or power, and they're using it to oppress others. Psalm 19, verse 7 is is a similar text. So oppression is not a neutral act. It's a sinful act and 
it is evil. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about oppression when we define oppression when we define our terms, but I don't think personally I don't think oppression is sufficient on its own to define and describe abuse. I like what Jeremy Pierre and Greg Wilson say in their book When Home Hurts. They say oppression is a unique form of suffering involving the intentional sin of those with greater capacity against those with less. So it's a unique form of suffering, and I think it's a part of the abuse experience. I just don't think it's a comprehensive word that captures it. And you might remember in our series, maybe a couple years ago now, when we went through Isaiah, that that God calls us to correct oppression. We saw that in the very first chapter, chapter 1, verse 17 in Isaiah. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. I mean, deliver those from uh, out of oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So, when you help someone, even in a small way, who's in a an abusive relationship, you are actually doing the justice that God called you to do, call, has called us all to do. Which leads to the fourth theme, and that's of justice. God is a just God. He reveals himself to us that way, and he calls us to do justice. And this is a, a, a verse many of us know, Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So uh, justice can have some different kind of definitions, but the basic meaning for justice is to treat people equitably. Uh, justice is actually often a, 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 a word used by Old Testament prophets like, like Micah to sum up in a, in, a, in a sort of a concise way our social obligations to one another that are based on God's law. That's kind of partly what justice means. Therefore, justice prohibits oppression and all kinds of evil, and it implies delivering one from oppression and evil by just means. That's what we saw. That was the call there in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. So here's a, a definition, not a comprehensive de- definition of justice, that more applies, though, to our topic tonight. Justice is the act of delivering one from oppression and evil and includes retribution for evil. So you, there's, there's not only the delivering part, there is the punishment uh, for evil that justice brings. Now, biblical justice includes due process. So you have somebody that um, accuses someone else of something, maybe a crime, for example. We have a court system in the United States that there's a due process to, to, to process and to look at that accusation or charge very carefully. And that's a biblical thing. Due process is biblical. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong, any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall, shall a charge be established. So I, I mentioned this facet of biblical justice because there are some in our culture today, I, I believe rightly intended, but uh, they're typically victim advocacy groups who say that you always believe the victim. You always believe them, and they don't include due process. Um, Let me be very clear. We must always listen to the victim. We must always care for the victim. We must always 
find a safe place for the victim, but we, we can't, we, we, while we do that, we can't jettison due process because it, that is in our Bibles as well. All right, that leads to the fifth theme, identity. I just termed it identity in Christ. I think the theological term that might be a little bit better is union with Christ. Um, and you, you know about our union with Christ once the gospel transforms our hearts. And when the gospel does that and unites us with Christ, it, it, we are united to him in such a comprehensive way that our, our entire identity is found in Christ. So just one proof text, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and we've died to our sin, and your life, listen to the language, is hidden with Christ in God. Our entire life is hidden with Christ in God. So our union with Christ not only determines our, the identity, the core identity of our personhood, but our union with Christ, it actually helps us to continue to follow him. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Walk in Christ, rooted and built up in him, in Christ, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, this, this biblical theme of identity in Christ is important because abusers sin against their victims in various ways. They use manipulation. They, they use finger-pointing or accusation, uh, consistent anger, consistent demeaning words, where they just tear the person down to control the abused. That's, that's why they do that. And as a result... The victim can begin to adopt that way of thinking, if you can say it that way. And in a practical sense, she begins to lose her identity because she's beginning to adopt what he's saying about her. She doesn't know who she is anymore. She doesn't know how to make decisions. She can be fearful and aimless because she's sort of lost her way. And part of that is because she's lost her identity in Christ. To use the language of Colossians 2, she is no longer rooted and built up in Christ because she's been torn down by the abuse that she has experienced. As Ruth Glenn said in the Wall Street Journal article, she said this, Gradually I began to recall that I was and always had been much more than the abuse I had suffered. So she began to identify with it and the light started to come on a little bit later for her. So one of the ways that you and I help, abuse, uh, help those in abusive relationships is not just helping them find themselves. Uh, it, for the Christian, it's much more than that. It's helping them see who they are in Christ. And it's helping, we'll talk about this, it's helping them to see how God views them. Um, both of those are really important. And that's important because the ultimate solution for the effects that a victim experiences because of abuse is, is really found in the transformative power of the gospel. It is really there and their identity in Christ. Okay, sixth theme is that of love. Uh, you know this, love is God's design for human relationships. Love includes building one another up at the expense of self. It is a laying down of our lives for the good of 
another person that we love. That's captured in 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And how did he love us? And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So God sacrificially loved us by giving his son. That was a sacrifice on his part. And God the son sacrificially loved us by dying on the cross in our place, as the text says, to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means to to basically remove wrath that we deserved and, and allow us to know the favor of God. God's love is a self-giving, self-sacrificial, other-centered love. And that's how he calls us to love others. That's what, that's what, means, what, it, what it means that love's, love is God's design for human relationships. An abuser's love is the antithesis of God's love. It is, because an abuser's love is, is self-focused, and it is a self-satisfying love. And that's important for us to know. Seventh theme is that of marriage. Because abuse can occur within the context of marriage, we must make sure that we define marriage biblically. God, first of all, created the institution of marriage very early in the creation account, Genesis 2, verse 24. I won't read that verse. I'm sure you're very familiar with it. But our statement of faith as a church and, and as a family of churches, I think it captures a compelling picture of marriage in the way that God designed it to be. Here's what it says. God instituted marriage as the union of one man and one woman who complement each other in a one flesh union that ultimately serves as a type of the union between Christ and his church. This remains the only normative pattern of sexual relations for humanity. Husbands are to, now listen to this, husbands are to exercise headship sacrificially and with humility. And wives are to serve as helpers to their husbands, willingly supporting and submitting to their leadership. Now listen to this sentence. Together, these complementary roles bring joy and blessing to each other and display the beauty of God's purpose to the world. So love is God's design for marriage relationship that is marked by a self-giving and a self-sacrificial love. And the purpose of that is to bring joy and blessing to your spouse, to one another. And that's an important truth because in abusive marriages, the joy and blessing, it just runs in one direction. It runs towards the abuser. It's only for his joy and his self-satisfaction and his blessing at the expense of the victim. In other words, when you think about abuse or you hear about an abusive marriage, marriage is not the problem. It's, it's the sin of the abuser in marriage that's the problem. And that's why you've got to get that right. Marriage is not the problem. Which kind of leads to the, the next theme, masculinity and femininity. So maybe, maybe you're not married, but you find yourself in an abused dating relationship, or you know somebody who's, who's in an abusive dating relationship. It's important 
to then know, not only for marriage, but, but for relationships like that, how the Bible defines masculinity and femininity. I think it's also important for us because some of the cultural conversation today about abuse, people will say that complementarianism is the problem. And I don't believe that complementarianism is the problem. Sin in the relationship is the problem. So this is what we say in our statement of faith about men and women, about masculinity and femininity. Men and women are both made in the image of God and are equal before him in dignity and worth. We've already talked about that. Gender, so this is a whole topic that Rob talked about last month, I believe. Gender, designated by God through our biological sex, is therefore neither incidental to our identity nor fluid in its definition. That's an important sentence, isn't it? But it is essential to our identity as male and female. Although the fall distorts and damages God's design for gender and its expression, these remain part of the beauty of God's created order. Men and women reflect and represent God in distinct and complementary ways. And these differences are to be honored and celebrated. I slowed down purposely. Those differences are to be honored and celebrated in all dimensions of life. To deny or seek or to remove these differences is to distort a fundamental way in which we glorify God as male and female. So men and women are to honor one another. We're to honor one another because men and women are made in the image of God. So in the abusive relationship, there is typically no honoring being done by the abuser, which is a sinful rejection of God's good design for men and women. So when abuse occurs, complementarianism isn't the problem. It's sin in the relationship and of the abuser in particular that is the problem. Okay, last, last biblical theme, uh, authority, power. I didn't know which one to use. So I put them both because they, they both kind of sort of, they bring different thoughts to us. So I'm using them together. Uh, there can be a, a sinful use of authority and there can be sinful power dynamics in an abusive relationship. I think you probably know that. Therefore, we, we, can, we can react to that and we can think authority and power are just bad. We shouldn't, there shouldn't be any authority or power. But the Bible tells us, speaks to this issue a bit differently. Any, any, first of all, any authority that you and I have, so I, authority that I might have as, as a husband, for example, or as, as a father, has been delegated to me by God. It's not my own authority. I understand it to be delegated to me by God, and it is to be used for the flourishing of others. That's, that's how you understand it. Um, we see that there's a number of proof texts that I could give you, but I think a very clear one is the creation mandate found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 31. I'm not going to read all those verses. I'm just going to read the very first verse, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over. So that dominion over means you've got, you've got authority over, partly. Dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So at creation, God uniquely, of, all, of everything he created, he gave human beings dominion. He gave us authority to fulfill the creation mandate, which basically means we are to give our lives to uh, continuing what he began at creation. 
For example, in your work or vocation, what you're doing is, is fulfilling the creation mandate. Your work at home as, as a mom is fulfilling the creation mandate. And the whole purpose of fulfilling the creation mandate ultimately is the glory of God. But it is to lead, in other words, authority and power is to lead to the flourishing of everything, but especially the flourishing of human beings. So authority and power, when rightly used as God designed, are gifts. They're actually good things when they're used rightly, right? When they lead to the flourishing of others. So in an abusive relationship, authority and power are not the problem. It's the sinful use of authority and power that are the problem. That's why I like what Jeremy Pierre and Greg Wilson say. The problem is not authority itself, but the misuse of authority for self-serving rather than self-giving purposes. So those are just some biblical themes I've quickly moved through. And those biblical themes will help now define some of the terms, some of the key terms that we're going to look at next. And these terms, there, there are a lot of terms in Scripture, such as violence, oppression, harm, wickedness, unfaithfulness, sin. Uh, those are just some examples that can be used to define abuse, but none of them on their own comprehensively uh, define abuse. And so, uh, here's my attempt to define it. Um, so, number one, the first key term is abuse. So, here's the definition I'm using. Abuse occurs when a person in a position of greater influence, you could say power, uses his personal capacities to diminish the personal capacity of, capacities of those under his influence in order to control them for the purpose of fulfilling his self-interest and desires. That's just... Uh, a little bit of a mouthful of a definition, but I try to get as brief as possible. So the, the, the abuser has manipulative intent. He is manipulating and uses behavioral forcefulness to control those under his influence, which diminishes their personhood. It, di- it diminishes the personhood of the victim. And that behavioral forcefulness expresses itself in various different forms. It can, it can be physical. It can be sexual. It can be a pattern of consistent anger, uh, a consistent berating of another. It can be silence. People use silence to manipulate. It can be withholding of finances. It can be isolation where an abuser tries to isolate the victim from family members and friends. Those are just some of the ways that you see expressions of behavioral forcefulness. Um, abuse alone can be a, a form of oppression that desecrates the personhood of the one being abused. And we've seen this already, but abuse is a, a sinful reversal of love as defined by Scripture. So that's abuse. Number two, victim. Um, Fairly simple, straightforward definition. A victim is a person who is being abused and therefore suffering the direct effects of the sinful, harmful actions of another. Now, the longer the abuse goes on, or maybe how serious the abuse is, the more prone someone is to find their identity as a victim. They can begin to identify that way. And yet their entire identity should not be found in that term, especially if they're a believer, especially if they're a Christian. So caring for a victim includes you helping her to see herself in the way that God sees her and not in the way that she's been conditioned to see herself by the abuse she's been experiencing because that can happen 
for someone who's being abused. For the Christian, it's helping her to see that she is in Christ, to help her begin to see again her identity in Christ. And for the non-Christian, it's helping them to see that the core of their their personhood is is found in the fact that they are made in the image of God. That's the core of their identity and personhood. Now, we'll talk about this, but helping restore a person's core identity, it takes a long time, and it requires your patience, which we'll talk about in a moment. Here's a, here's a third term, survivor. A survivor is a person who is no longer being abused or in an abusive relationship and therefore has survived, in that sense, the abuse. And even though terms like victim and survivor are descriptive, again, it's very important that a person not find their entire identity in being a victim or, or, uh, or, or a survivor. Again, for the, for the Christian, their identity is in Christ And those around them should patiently begin, over the course of time, begin to root their identity back in Christ. And again, for the non-Christian, I think what you want to do is to help them see that they are one that was made in God's image. Now I threw this fourth term in, this term overcomer, just to offer an alternative to survivor. I don't think survivor is a bad term. It's it's, it's a fine one to use. But I I threw an overcomer because I, I think it can be helpful. So even though it is a survivor is a common term, the word overcomer, it could be better for Christians. You, you can make your own decision on that uh, for the one who is no longer being abused. I say that because in the first epistle that, that John wrote, 1 John, he uses that word overcomer to describe how a Christian by faith resists the worldly enemies of the soul. And you see that in 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So one of the evils, one of the enemies of the soul in our world is the evil of abuse. So a Christian by faith can be sustained and helped by God to overcome the effects of abuse, to become an overcomer. And being an overcomer is only possible because of Jesus for the Christian. Because it is through his death and through his resurrection that he did overcome the world. And that's why I kind of like the term. The the term overcomer, it it roots a person's ability to to overcome the abuse in, in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. It roots it there, and that's why I kind of like it. Um, You've got to remember that um, Jesus said he was going to do that the night before he died. In his farewell discourse, John chapter 16, verse 33, I've said these things to you. So he's about ready to transition to his high priestly prayer in John 17. He's wrapping up his, his uh, farewell discourse, and he says, I've said these things to you. That's everything in John 14 through 16 that in me you may have peace. And then he says this, in the world you will have tribulation. He warns us of the evil. He he warns us of the enemies of the soul in the world that will bring us tribulation. Then he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So a person who has experienced the tribulation of abuse can have peace in Christ because Christ has overcome the world through his work in the gospel. And he can help them overcome. 
Okay, fifth term, abuser. I think this is straightforward. Even though abuser is not used in Scripture, uh, we, we do get a picture of, a, of the violence that they can do or the evil they do. One of those proof texts is Psalm 10, verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. So obviously, abuser uses words verbally to abuse. Um, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. So here's a definition, very simple. An abuser is on the giving end of abuse and therefore responsible for the sinful, harmful effects that are inflicted on another. Now, as I mentioned before, the abuser uses behavioral forcefulness in various forms. That can be, again, physical, it can be sexual, it can be uh, rage, consistent anger, a consistent putting down or belittling of another. It can be silence, it can be withholding of finances, it can be isolation. All of that is being done to manipulate and coerce and control the other person. Now, you've got to keep this in mind about the abuser. Similar to a victim, the longer that an abuser is an abuser, the longer that his abusive behavior continues, the more he might be prone to find his identity in that term. And yet, especially as a Christian, he shouldn't find his core identity in that term. Okay, sixth term is that of trauma. And because the term trauma is used a lot in our, our culture today, and it's, it's, I think it's a good term. I think, though, it's at times overused and sometimes not uh, brought with good definition. How should we understand trauma theologically? How, how should we wrap our heads around that? And uh, I found uh, Pierre and Wilson's uh, quote really helpful. He's, they say, we exist to bring glory to God by loving him and others. So we've established that biblical truth already. Abuse dishonors God by desecrating his image in the other person. We've seen that truth. The impact of the desecration of the image of God in the victim is known as trauma. I think that's a helpful way to think about it theologically. So very simple definition. Trauma is the damage done to one made in the image of God by the sin of an abuser. Pierre and Will... Uh, yeah, Pierre and Wilson say this, trauma is the limiting effect on a victim from her abuser's repeated attempts to control her. Now, I got a spelling error here, and I tried not to get any spelling errors. So that, it says he capacities, it's her capacity. So put an R in there. Her capacities as a divine image bearer are diminished. Specifically, her capacity to think, to desire, and to make choices for herself in a way free from the intrusion of the consequences she lives under. This hinders how she responds to life, both how she sees her life and how she acts in it. That's, that's a bit how trauma works. It limits her in, in that way. And generally, the more severe the abuse or the more long-standing the abuse, the more damaging the trauma and the longer restoration can take. Um, if you, if you read on this, um, uh, experts, and I think rightly so, they talk about triggers. There are triggers that trigger trauma. Um, and I think that's a, that's a good term because trauma is triggered by different things. It can be triggered by people. It can be triggered by places. It can be triggered by holidays or seasons of the year. Um, and they can manifest themselves in a, a number of physiological ways, like panic attacks, fatigue, chronic pain that's hard to diagnose, changes in appetite, 
unexplained pains, digestive issues, and, and many, many more. Those are just some that you would see in a victim. The victim may, they may avoid activities, they may avoid people, they may avoid certain conversations because they know that they can act like triggers and trigger, trigger a traumatic response, a physiological response of some kind. But the trauma also includes emotional and, and spiritual effects as well, including nightmares, a deep sense of worthlessness, shame, troubles with concentration, loss of memory, and this is important, a corrupted perception of self and of God and of others. That's the effect of, of abuse, and that's an expression, really, of the trauma they're experiencing. So that's a little bit, those, those are how I define key terms. Uh, let's just look uh, quickly at the dynamics of an abusive relationship. And it's important you understand a little bit, and I didn't go into much detail here just for the sake of time, but it's important to understand the dynamics, and we've kind of referenced some of them already, so that you can have some understanding or perspective to what you're observing, maybe in a relationship or with a person, or, or what you're seeing. It's also imper- important to understand the dynamics because it, it helps you to know how to potentially help a victim and come alongside of them. So I, I just decided to put the dynamics in the categories of the abuser and, and the victim. So the abuser, uh, the abuser seeks to control and dominate the other person through a pattern of manipulation, accusation, coercion, anger, threats, and punishing behaviors for the purpose of fulfilling their own self-interest. Abusers want their victims to feel responsible for their sins so they can use that fear and guilt to control them. That's why they're always shifting blame and pointing the finger. And let's be very clear. there There is never excuse for abuse, ever. Never. Abusers will do practical things like withhold finances. I mentioned that. Isolate victims from their family and friends or from their church. And if there are children, they will use children to get to her to try to manipulate her. Abusers are also very deceptive and they're very good at disguising their abuse. And if you've known one, they are masters at it. But that That deception includes their own self-deception, meaning this, that abusers, they typically see themselves better than what they really are. Uh, This is what uh, Pierre and Wilson say. An abusive person usually sees himself better than he is. He sees himself as precise instead of nitpicking, strong instead of brutal, decisive instead of demanding, tough instead of cruel. And what happens if, uh, if, if he is confronted or if you ask about the relationship, even ask the victim about him, there's excuses that can surface um, for why he might be even abusing another person. And all these excuses seek to release him from responsibility. So a couple I put down, well, he just can't control his anger. Or he just loves her so much he's afraid he's going to lose her. It's those kind of excuses that you can hear. Darby Strickland, in in her book, Is It Abuse?, says, each of these excuses cast the abuser as being helpless. Nothing can be further from the truth. Abusers are not out of control. They seek control. That's just a very well-written couple of sentences that I wanted you to have. Okay, dynamics of the victim. Uh, the, The victim can have several different responses 
uh, to the abuse that they're experiencing. Uh, these respon- these um, uh, responses include making excuses for the person ab- abusing them. They, they will do that. Uh, they will also have their own shame to deal with. They'll have despair, anxiety, fear, cynicism, hopelessness, and they just begin to lose perspective about reality overall. Uh, if the victim is a Christian, they might be prone to overly spiritualize their situation by trying to endure the abuse for, for in the name of love or for the sake of the gospel. That's how they might try to super spiritualize it. And you can't, you can't let them do that. She can begin to adopt lies about herself and her situation. So I'm not a victim since this Again, spelling error, this is not really abuse. She can begin to try to convince herself, no, this is not really abuse. I'm not a victim since I deserve this. So if somebody says that, you know they're beginning to adopt the standards of her abuser. That's what they're beginning to do. Um, I'm not a victim, I'm a sinner. I'm a victim and always will be. Pierre and Wilson say this, victims of abuse are, of course, responsible for their responses. Recognizing this is essential to honoring them as persons made in the image of God. Yet, we must acknowledge that the actions done to her by someone with greater influence has a damaging effect. And what he's really saying there is that's really the issue. Of course, she's going to be responsible for some things, but don't let that take precedence. What's precedence is the abuse that she is suffering. So here's some unhelpful behaviors that you can see in victims, and maybe you've seen some of these. Withdrawal from regular relationships, including those in the church. She may withhold information from those around her because she's fearful that the abuser will be exposed, and then if he's exposed and he finds out, she's going to suffer the consequences. Uh, She may struggle to regulate her emotions, so it can seem that her emotions may be all over the map at times. She may make decisions that you look at them and say, those are just illogical and they don't make sense. A victim can spend a great deal of time trying to adjust to the abuser's unpredictable patterns of behavior. And by the way, that's what abusers will do at times. They will will change things up. They're trying not to be predictable. They'll just kind of just change. And so she's trying to adapt to that. And you'll, 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 you'll notice that. If the abuser is withholding finances to control her, she may be asking you for financial help. A victim also might try to outlove, outloyal, and outlast the abuse, which is going to be harmful. A victim may seem even to turn against those who are trying to help her. So those are some of the things that you can see in, in a victim and some of the dynamics that are, are happening. So let's just close with this question, what, what can you do to help? And I'll move through these pretty quickly. These are just principles. Um, and I put them in the principle category more than the practice category, but they inform the practice. So the first one is safety. The immediate priority is the safety of the one being abused. And if children are in the home, um, the safety of the children as well. So the victim, if the victim is telling you they're being abused, they are taking significant risk about the abuse she's experiencing. Because if she's found out, there's a lot of consequences for her. So keep that in mind. So your role is initially not to investigate the information that she's given you, but to act responsibly based on the information and help her to find a safe place if she's ready to do that. So practicals, and you read this in 
In the literature I've, I've, I've read, I'm sure Andy's read this, encourage her to have what they call a go bag. Have a bag packed that he's not aware of so that if she needs to get out quickly. If things really escalate and they really get kind of crazy, she grabs the bag and she, and she goes. Or she can do that, uh, have a bag packed for the kids as well if there are children in the home. Also, in, encourage her to have several sort of backup plan options. So a person that, that we know... Um, when they, when they left a, a few different times, they already had a list of homes they would go to. They'd already talked to these people. Uh, they, they knew that at a moment's notice, she knew that at a moment's notice, she could go to that home. And if he found that out, she could move on to the next one. So they, they had somewhere between three and five places that, that they could go. So you might, might encourage that. Um, if she doesn't have a safe place to stay, there are several domestic uh, abuse organizations in our area. And I listed them there. Uh, you can look up phone numbers then online. Uh, for, for Delaware County, the Domestic Abuse Project of Delaware County, um, the Domestic Violence Center of Chester County, so that's Chester County, and in Delaware, Delaware Coalition Against Domestic Violence. All of those organizations will offer safe housing and, and give safe housing. And by the way, if, if your home is a place of safety, if a victim and her children or just a victim come to your home, one of the things that will help her is to, is to show her how you're trying to make your home a safe place. So that, include, that can include things like outside lights, uh, uh, locks, alarms, if you've got alarms in your home, uh, cameras, or if you've got a ring doorbell. All those things will help comfort her knowing that your place is safe. Okay, second principle is to report. So if, if you believe a crime has potentially been committed. So maybe it's child sexual abuse or there's been physical violence of a criminal nature. You should report it to civil authorities. Um, you need to do that. Um, um, I- ideally, doing that with the victim might be best, but regardless, re- report. And then let the civil authorities do their work. Uh, third, loving patience. I've talked a little bit about this. I want to talk a little bit more so the, the road to someone admitting that they're in an abusive relationship and the road to restoration of the victim is typically a very, very long road. So the best thing you can do is to be patient. And I'm not just talking patient. I'm talking really patient and loving. And keep in mind that if kids are involved, that makes it more complex. It makes it more challenging, which will require your patience, your enduring patience. Um, this is what I like about Pierre Wilson's quote here. The people who are most, and this is why you have to be patient. This is what they're saying. The people who are most dependent on an abusive person suffer the worst consequences of his self-deception. So that's partly why you've got to be patient with them. They, not you, are suffering the consequences um, of the abuse. So as an abusive person relates to them out of this corrupted perception, he influences their perception of everything. And so part of the reason you've got to be patient with them is because their perception of reality has, is not right. It's, it's, uh, it's wrong. And she needs time to reorient her perception back to reality. And that's kind of what you have to help her do, and that takes a long time. Therefore, even when you don't understand why she might be making the decisions she's making or why she doesn't do more when you want her to do more, your loving patience with her, it will do this. It will build trust with her. And that trust 
you got to have in the bank for the future as you continue to walk down the road of restoration with her. One of the people that Jill and I know, who was in an abusive relationship, who gave me permission to share this, uh, said that um, she left five different times and then went back every time before finally leaving. That requires patience. You don't understand why, why go back, right? But that's why you need patience. Okay, fourth principle, restoring identity. Uh, I've mentioned this. I, I think abuse strips a person of their identity. It affects their perspective of themselves, of others, and of the Lord himself. And restoring her identity, if she's a Christian in Christ, through which her perspective can change, it does take time and it does require patience. Um, I, I love this quote from uh, Pierre and Wilson. The central goal of long-term care from a spiritual perspective is to be an empathetic witness who can, by God's grace, help, the, help a victim restore what the abuse destroyed in her perspective of herself, of relationships, and of the Lord most importantly. Faith in Jesus Christ is the power behind the process of restoring her ability to see life rightly. I put that quote in there for several reasons, but note the long term. He uses that term, long-term phrase, um, meaning you got to have patience. Restoring her ability to see life rightly will take time. It will probably take longer than what you think is probably the way to say it. It's not as, and it's not as simple as, as saying, um, sweetheart, you are in Christ. Or friend, you are in Christ. It's not that simple. In fact, I wouldn't even start that. I wouldn't even get close to that. Well, maybe we'll talk about it in the Q&A. Um, rather, as God gives you opportunity, and God will give you opportunities, you can remind her who God is, that's the, the way to do it, and who he's revealed himself to be in his word. So another quote from Pierre and Wilson, you want her to see God as he's revealed himself, that is, as a heavenly father who never forces obedience from his children, but compels them to obey by transforming their hearts God is entirely trustworthy, never manipulative, stable in his judgment, and patient even when wronged. Whatever abuse is, God's love is opposite. So you're trying to help her to see how God reveals himself in his word. In other words, the truths of Scripture will counter the lies that victims are prone to, not only to, 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 to adopt, but, but, but believe. Okay, fifth principle, trained counselor. Um, depending on the abuse and the victim, helping the victim find a good counselor is, is usually uh, important. And that would be a trained counselor. Your relationship and your friendship with her is vital, but they're going to need trained, a, a trained counselor. And, um, and if there are children involved, most likely children are going to need a trained counselor. And if you, if you want... Um, Names of trained counselors, talk to one of us as pastors. We, we would be aware of who we could point you to. In other words, um, I, I, I want you to help her and come alongside of her. Maybe even counsel her here and there, but it's not going to be sufficient. She's going to need trained counseling. And then six, lastly, encouragement. Because abuse does affect a, vic- a victim's perspective of herself and of others and of God. I believe that overcomers of abuse, they, they need maybe more than any other people consistent encouragement. 
Hebrews 3.13, you know it, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Abusers simply use various means, including deception, to control another person, which warps the victim's perspective of reality. Encouragement is a means of grace that God uses to help restore a victim's perspective of reality. It, it begins, lights begin to come on when you encourage her and she begins to see things as they really are. So in caring for a person who has survived abuse, take every opportunity, look for every opportunity to encourage her. Let me, let me close with this. Um, this can be heavy. This can be a weighty topic. So never lose hope in the power of the gospel. Colossians 1, verses 21 and 23, and, through 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. We, 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 we should never lose hope in the power of the gospel. We should never lose hope in the power of the gospel for the abuser. Hope for an abuser to truly change and stop his abusive ways can be found in the gospel. Again, Pierre and Wilson, abuse is not just outward actions, but an inward attitude of heart. The most fundamental problem with us as people is the sinfulness that resides in our own hearts. The problem is so profound that no strategy or therapy we can come up with can solve it. When a man is transformed by the gospel, it is not just words admitting wrong, but a transformed life that demonstrates itself over time in changed behavior and words. And then there's hope for the victim. Hope for a victim's restoration can be found in the gospel. And Peter wrote it this way in 1 Peter 5.10. And after you have suffered a little while, and there have been people that have suffered from abuse, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, God himself, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. All right. That's my teaching right there. Thank you for, for listening. Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you. So um, we've got a panel, and uh, I hope Andy and Rob got good answers. I'm just going to sit up here because I've been talking a lot. So uh, we want to hear any questions that you might have. So yeah, in this so context, we're gonna let them ask questions too. So you're gonna ask some. Or I'm gonna ask some. I'm gonna kick it open to the floor. If there's not a lot of questions coming, I've got a whole bunch. So we're gonna be in good shape with questions. But let me ask a few, and then uh, and then we'll open it up, uh, and uh, we'll go maybe 30 minutes on this. Okay. Uh, here's the first one, and maybe I'll ask this straight to Andy. Give you a little break. Mm. You could always comment on what Andy says. But beyond what Mark just said in this really excellent overview on domestic violence, um, what are just a few things we might say to, to these folks about victims of sexual abuse? Just clarifying, within the context of 
of, of a relationship or just ex- having experienced sexual, sexual abuse? Yeah, uh, f- first the, f- the former, then the latter. Okay. Um, wow. I know. Wow. Um, I was thinking of the sexual component of spousal abuse, right. which is control. Um, so any, one, one way that, that uh, people can be victimized in a relationship, uh, controlled, one of the control mechanisms is through sex. So unforced sex or deviant sex, things that demean them. If you think about the whole idea of this abuse dynamic, it is, and control through demeaning, um, sex is a very powerful way to do that. Um, so I think that there's a control aspect that occurs in this dynamic with abuse that might be different than someone who just commits a, a sexual acts against somebody out of aggression or in a you know in a in a in an, in an encounter or in a dating relationship where um, you know so I think there is a distinct difference because of the ongoing systematic nature of the use of those kind of things. Um, I think someone who is uh, who's been uh, sexually abused, and um, without going into the category of, of child sexual abuse, which we've covered in other ways, I think the necessity of, uh, of um, getting, uh, getting, getting somebody to advocate, getting away from the relationship, considering uh, reporting. Um, one of the things about reporting that can be challenging in any of this is the police are limited in what they can do. And um, you have to be really careful. Usually I find the best way to know how to involve the police is, is with, a, uh, with, with, with consulting with, an, with the, the advocacy programs. Mm-hmm. They're good at saying, I think now's a good time or this is a way to do this. Mm-hmm. And not just say, Let's, let me call the police because um, it can get complicated. But, so I, I want to say that there needs to be reporting, but I think recognizing that that the police have limits in what they can do, um, and due process involves sometimes leaving a person available to do more things. You have to be really careful with how that goes. So uh, on on um, sexual abuse in general, I think I think it should end up it should end up uh, in prosecution. I think uh, in the context of a of a of a domestic abuse situation it's part of a bigger picture that'll need to be dealt with guys where would you say the average person i'm not talking about a professional counselor or police officer or even a pastor for that matter but the average person where would you say they should draw a line between what's their responsibility and what needs to be someone else's responsibility I think that the most helpful people in a domestic abuse situation are the people the, first, the person first goes to. The person opens up to somebody or some people. Um, they become the first line of help. I think to move you have to be really careful with the amount of courage that it takes to open this up and not to simply say, let me get somebody else involved that you're not 
you haven't asked. So in a way, in, in a way, you wouldn't want to necessarily say, okay, let me go talk to a pastor, or at least tell them we should go talk to a pastor, because that they lose control, right? Yeah. Um, and we have to be very careful with people who've been having control taken systematically away from them, that that the people trying to help them do the same thing. I'm going to take this out of your hands. I'm going to deal with it. And now you're vulnerable to me. So I think a, a better way to go is if somebody comes um, to you, uh, then certainly come to one of us if you want and talk with us about ways to do it. But don't communicate that now you're going to involve us. Also recognize that for a woman who's being uh, abused by a man, someone like us has the same tonal uh, effect. Right. We're men talking. And somebody in abuse can't really distinguish between the way our voices resonate and the way an abuser's voice resonates. And so we as pastors have to be very careful how we get involved. We're actually much better serving somebody through hopefully one or multiple women who are active and sharing the burden of it and advising uh, those, those women. That's the best way for it to work, not for a pastor to jump in. Eventually, a pastor get involved, but we're going to be much more effective helping people who've already been brought in by the victim and not expanding it beyond what the victim wants. Uh, it's just very dangerous because, because they, they've lost their ability to, to make decisions, and if the first proactive decisions they make end up complicating their lives, they're liable to back away. So we want to make so this is not a case where hey listen can you go talk to somebody or I'm gonna I'm gonna bring the pastors in I think it's a case where Andy you know what I've got this situation you don't have to tell us who it is I want to know what a good next step might be let us advise um, let us help you seek help for for wisdom and not simply bring us in as though pastors are going to get in and solve this uh, can I just add a, course, a quick yeah. thought as Andy said it takes a lot of courage for her to share this with you. Um, it may be obvious to, to you what she needs. She probably doesn't know what she needs. Mm-hmm. But if you begin to tell her what she needs, that can feel like, again, somebody's trying to control her life. Yeah. And so that, that approach is typically not, not helpful. It's more coming alongside of her. We can help you to talk how to do that so that she begins to discover what she needs. And then she makes the decisions. You're not making the decisions for her. That's the, that's the better situation. Yeah. And even with reporting, you've got to make sure you've got to be aware that in an adult situation, we can go to the police, but we don't really have any standing. Right. And so the issue is, you, you know, we, we don't want to put a person in a situation where we've acted um, independently of them and complicated their lives. All that's going to do is press them back into the problem they've been trying to get out of. Right. Um, so... So really, this this idea we're coming alongside is parkaleos. We're coming alongside and asking God to help us. Was involved with a situation where a woman uh, in their play group began to talk among the women, got more comfortable with them, and began to talk. And it became apparent that she was in an abusive relationship. What they did very well is the two or three that were that were uh, that she brought in uh, sort of teamed up and said, "How can we share the load?" Be very careful, if you can, not to be the only person because you won't have the resources to be able to help all the ways you might need to. But there's several people involved. Now she's got community. 
Now she has the ability to draw on multiple people. You know, they ended up providing housing for her in their own home. Um, others began to help in other ways. And, and she was able to be helped over time because she had community options. She didn't just have to go do an isolated thing. So, uh, so I, think, I think that's what we'd lo- I'd love to see is just, okay, who is she going to be willing to talk to? Who can surround her? And then, um, and then let her begin to use those resources that she wants. Right, that answered about four of my questions here. L- let me ask this one. And I'm framing it intentionally in like a crass way, uh, I, I'm a flippant way, uh, because this is how it gets asked often. Uh, how would you respond to someone who would say, if you're in an abusive relationship, why don't you just leave? There's a thing called the abuse cycle, um, and it looks something like this. It's, it's fairly consistent, where a, a person will be in an abusive relationship. Now, this is a relationship for, what, for any number of reasons they chose to get into. This is, how, this is a relationship that they embraced at some point. And so, in their minds, a lot of times, this is the relationship they're supposed to be in, so you have an abuser who plays on that, whether a marriage or a, a domestic situation. They play on the idea that you've made a choice to be here. This is you as well, um, all the time, uh, stripping away their identity. So what ends up happening is it gets to a point where it's really, it's really uh, gets bad. They may make a dramatic choice to leave. Um, typically, when someone leaves, the uh, the Abuse will have several tactics that they'll employ. Um, if there are children involved, there's all kinds of tactics with the kids. Yeah. And that makes it complicated, just having kids. What, happened, what about the kids? Um, but it'll look a lot of times like uh, s- significant remorse. I'm a terrible person. I shouldn't have driven you away. I'm so bad. I'm so evil. I'm going to kill myself. I need you. Whatever it takes to get somebody to begin to have sympathy for you. And then typically when you move back toward them because you think there may be changing, they may even do something. They may go talk to somebody. They may say, I'm going to get help. They may make promises. Any number of things. When the person begins to go, go back to them um, because they feel like this may be different next time, they're typically really affirmed. Get gifts, trip, new things, um, new leaf. They get back comfortable within the home. Uh, then the the the, the, the abuser has them back into the cycle, they revert back to their behavior. It was all intended to get them back that way. And then, uh, and then they, uh, they will, um, they, they start the cycle over again. So that's what happens a lot of times with people is they feel, well, maybe he's changed. Maybe it's different. Maybe, and, and they look at where am I going to go? He has everything. He's got control of my life. I, I'll have to start from nothing. And, um, and that's a scary place to be. So all those things work against somebody making a break. And like I said, it can be five, seven. I think the, na- the average is about seven times before somebody actually, actually leaves for good. So the person who asked that question has grossly oversimplified what they're dealing with. Right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Misunderstands it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, two more questions, and then I'll kick it open. Okay. Uh, what are some wrong ways that people understand complementarianism? 
that can foster abusive relationships. So you said uh, authority isn't the problem or complementarianism isn't the problem. I think you said marriage isn't the problem. Right. It's sin in those relationships. Right. But complementarianism gets a lot of spotlight on it yeah. as a problem right. here and, uh, and often is cited by abusers in one way or another. Yeah. Um, what are those wrong ways of understanding it that can foster or foment abuse? Yeah, I mean, uh, I hope this answers your question. I think the first thing that, that comes to mind is a, uh, an unbiblical understanding of masculinity. Uh, a masculinity that is um, maybe more worldly defined than biblically defined. Um, because biblically, the things I talked about, it, a, a man is is um is going to use his uh, god-given let's say it's a marriage his god-given uh authority or call responsibility to lead for the good of his of his spouse mm-hmm. whereas i think um a worldly masculinity it's all about uh what i can get from it i think the other thing is is how a, a worldly masculinity thinks about and uses authority it's very authoritarian um, is, is the way to say it. And so because, um, because you see those, those types of men in the culture and because Christians can adopt that sort of view of understanding of masculinity, I could see why people would, would critique complementarianism. Um, but I think that they don't have a right understanding of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a... I think people equate complementarianism with traditionalism. Um, well, what you're really talking about is traditional. Uh, it's funny, I was just in, in, in Ethiopia. Uh, I was doing marriage and family counseling. That was the thing I was training guys on. And Ethiopia is very different, you know. If you wouldn't, you'd be shocked, but it is. <laughs> and, um, and they don't have the Western influences we have. And they have their own traditional understandings of marriage. Um, I think... There, I don't know if there's ever been a traditional understanding in any, in any culture that is simply because it's traditional, really complementarian. I don't think. I don't think any. I, I don't think the culture in this country that's been traditional has ever been soundly complementarian. I think it's had its own because it is worldly. Um, what we create in this world, apart from obedience to God's word, and and and. Letting God's word define has has been sometimes it's been the traditional, and so I think that there are people who equate the two, and I think we have to be careful to say no. No biblical complementarianism is cross cultural. It's meant to change the way the natural culture thinks about men and women in relationship. It's not meant to affirm any culture. So good. I was going to add something, but that was better. Um, here's my last question. Uh, how do you care for someone claiming to be a victim if you are not yet at a place of wholly believing them? I was listening to, Mark, what you were saying, and I, I thought there's probably some unhelpful ways that's understood. Um... When people say believe the victim, I think I think what they mean is 
take the victims. First of all, it's interesting as you were talking, I thought, well, you, you know, if someone's a victim, then you don't need to believe them because it's already proved, right? Someone who is saying they're, they're a victim um, is not a proven victim. They're just someone who's saying it. So, so believe the victim is kind of like, well, of course you're going to believe the victim because we've already proven that you're the victim. Right. Um, what I think you're, they're trying to get at is if someone is reporting this, take it seriously enough that they know that you're treating everything they say as if they are trying to tell you the truth of what's going on. Right. They're, they're giving you their experience, and we don't question whether their experience is real. Right. What we haven't done is interpreted their experience. So, for example, yeah. someone comes to you and says, I'm in an abusive uh, marriage. That's their, that's their perspective of what's going on. Um, you don't necessarily know enough to know whether they're truly the victim of something or not at that point. It, it may be that there is, uh, you know, there is conflict, and the conflict gets out of hand on both sides. And in a sense, that's legally, and I think uh, in the way most people understand it, if, there is, if someone has got the, the agency to fight back, and is not in danger when they fight back, that's probably not abuse. That's probably, uh, you know, it's, it's got all kinds of problems, and probably they're breaking laws. But abuse has that as a control. Mm-hmm. It has as it a system. Someone being put under another person for that other person's benefit. Mm-hmm. So you want to be careful. You want to hear them out. You never want to question whether what they're telling you mm-hmm. is true to them. Mm-hmm. But... You need to know more to know whether, and the, the keys are not, he did this, I did this. The keys are, does the, does the person have an ability to live their life as a self-governing person without the threat or implied threat of coercion or, uh, or violence against them? Um, that's the characteristic of abuse. And so we just want to be careful with... We, we don't believe the victim. We, we listen to the person. We take seriously whatever they're saying. And then we hope that we get enough to know how to act on what we have in appropriate ways. Yeah, I was basically, I think my, my posture would be I'm going to believe them until I see evidence of something differently. I want them to walk away saying he, he listened, um, he, he understands. Uh, let, let's talk more because I think if it's really abuse, some of the things that I taught tonight, you're going to begin to see those things. If it's not really abuse, you probably won't see them. Uh, but that's going to take several conversations in time. What you're not doing is is questioning the reality of what they're saying. Right. right. You're not you're not uh, you're not looking for where you are false. You're 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 trying to get an idea of what is the nature of what I'm hearing. And before I kick it open, there are scenarios for those who are mandatory reporters that we don't wait for several conversations to investigate things ourselves. Right. When we hear an allegation, we're required immediately to report those. Uh, would you like to expound on that? Well, that's probably something we need to have a conversation on because I don't know if we are for adults. Say, say that again. I don't know if we are mandatory for adults. Right, right. But I'm trying to use. I, I agree with you on that. Yes. So right. we don't yeah. we don't have to talk. I'm happy to talk to you. But um, 
but but realizing that Mark was using abuse broadly and mentioned right. sexual abuse yeah. several times throughout, right. if if a child is in this scenario, yeah. we don't investigate whether that's accurate yeah. or not. Yeah. We we're, we're required to report. Yeah, my assumptions we're not talking about child abuse. Right. We're, we're talking about adults. about adults. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's my frame of reference for everything okay. I'm saying. Yeah. Right. Good questions. So the question is, is there ever a time when you would directly confront the abuser? Uh, as a third party, you mean? Yeah. As, as a third party. Yeah. Most people who are in this line say you don't. By confronting, all you're doing is going to be to add to that man's arsenal about how to avoid detection. Um, uh, most of the time, what happens with abuse is people leave. And that exposes the abuser in their actions. And then you begin to see. Now, many, many abusers know how to go right up to the edge of the law. But if you go to a man, most likely what's going to happen is, here's what typically happens in churches. If a man's in a church, and there are abusers in churches, they, one of the patterns is they'll go from church to church. Once they begin to think that they might be exposed, they will leave and take their spouse, family with them, which means the support network that the woman has started to develop dissipates right away, and that's the goal. Once they start, people start getting enough, so, so in some sense, the, you're almost trying to kind of, we're not working with the abuser at all, because he's going to, he, he's hypervigilant on who's going to know what, and so... Um, so it's a great thing to talk to a pastor about, I believe this guy's doing this. I believe this is happening. What can I do? I think confrontation, typically most people who work in this field, say confrontation actually causes them to double down yeah. and, and, and re- reset their goals so that you're eliminated from the process. Right. And then she suffers the consequences. Yeah. It's a good question. Yes. Yeah, so the question is, are there instances where the abuser actually is the one who comes forward asking for help with their abusive behavior? Yeah, that, that happens. Um, I don't know percentages. You might know that, Andy. Not, as, not very often. Um, but one of the resources I gave you, When Home Hurts, has got a whole chapter on how to help an abuser. And... Um, it kind of takes you through steps. There's a good diagram in that chapter. Um, and, and if they are, let's say that they're ad- admitting to it. They may, keep in mind, they may be trying to use that uh, to get to her through you. You've got to keep that in mind. So it may just be uh, an, another attempt to get to her in control. So you want to, uh, if you want to keep her out of the situation if you can. And what you're looking for is, is he willing to continue to talk to me? And am I beginning to see any change, uh, any sense of brokenness over sin, for example, repentance? And that's going to take a really long time. 
Because he, he might decide just to play the long game with you just so he can get back in that relationship. And that's why you got to be really careful. Yeah, I think that the, the times you tend to see uh, someone begin to seek help is when they start to add up what they're going to lose. And what they're going to lose is greater by hiding than it is by coming out. That's not repentance, mm-hmm. right? And so people talk about, well, can you, should you look to try to restore the marriage? Um, I think it's possible that a marriage can be restored. I think the likelihood is not. Because I think that if you think about what's happened when someone gets to a point where at the place where they're, they leave an abusive marriage, they are a kind of person who doesn't know how to live making their own independent decisions. And they've been living with someone who has made all the decisions for them for their own benefit. That person who's, who's the, the victim will, take, will have to come to a place in life where they are essentially a different person. In the same place, the abuser is going to have to come to a place where they're a different person. The nature of a repentance is not simply what I'm no longer doing. It's that I'm not known as somebody who could ever do that. They, you, you, you basically, that's, that's the definition of repentance, particularly for an abuser, that you have so changed that, that when anyone encounters you, first of all, you're very self-aware. You're very aware of what I'm capable of. And you're very aware of my need for help. And you're very aware of that can happen. But by the time you get a person there, they won't know each other. Mm-hmm. Like, they won't know each other on the, on the other side of that. They'll be two entirely different people. And if they get there, then it would take another work of grace to have them think, well, maybe. Now, if there's kids, maybe. So I can see it happening. Mm-hmm. But I think you just have to recognize the amount of change individually that has to happen in each one of them for them to be able to even sit in a room and relate as two self-governing people under Christ. That would be an amazing a miracle. That's a miracle. Is, would, you, would you say it's safe to say, just think of the three of us here and the experience we've had in caring for people, uh, of all abusers who have acknowledged their wrongdoing in some way, the vast majority of those end up being manipulating and not repenting. Right. Sure. Right. Just, just the experience is so grossly in one direction. Uh, Time proves that out. And the good thing is if you, if you look at this, if you, if you do what Mark's done, you've done so, you read these books, it's not hard to, they're not that complicated people. You know, they're not that good at it to outsiders. Um, they're only good at it is if you don't really understand the nature of abuse. Once you understand what happens in abuse, somebody who's an abuser is a fairly easy person to read. They're fairly predictable. Um, you know, and so uh, unless there's other factors like drugs or like things that are messing with how they, they process.
So the question in essence is how, how would we counsel someone who's coming alongside someone who's being abused uh, to be helpful without having the weight of that, the vileness of it, uh, be unhealthy for the helper? Is that okay? Did I do that? The most healthy place for a victim to be is in community with multiple layers of people around them and never just one person. Their life has been dominated by one person. And if you get into that, you're not necessarily, you're not intending to abuse, but you're fitting a paradigm that they've been living in, which is I've got one person and often they are going to tend to, to draw from you inordinately. That would be that would be understandable. It's not manipulative on their part. They just, they've got, they've opened up to one person. So I think the best thing to do is, is if you have a chance to interact with somebody, to begin to say, first of all, help, you, help them get a counselor so there's somebody outside this speaking into it that they don't have to live and relate to. Um, so you're getting them resources. So you can't be everything. Usually the person who is resourcing cannot also be doing the ministry. Someone who is helping somebody uh, figure out, okay, I've got to find a place to live. Okay, I've got to find a job. Okay, I've got to do all those kind of things. Is not the person who's also in deep counsel. There may be somebody else in there who is the one who's the prayer partner. I'm praying with you. Um, what you want to do, if you're trying to do it and the person lets you, and it probably won't be right away, you know, say, listen, I want to help, but I don't think I'm going to be sufficient if I'm the only one. I'm going to be best, best helpful if we draw a couple of people in. Is there somebody else you want to draw in over time? And then you become a safe place. And, again, very important that you're not directive. You're, you do a lot of listening. A lot of what will happen is somebody will have to talk themselves into their own decisions. So one of the things people in trying to help somebody who's, who's uh, in abuse, is somebody will start talking and it sounds like they're about to make a stupid decision and you don't just interrupt into that stupid decision because that's what's been said to them for how long. I think instead you sort of say, tell me why. That's what if this happened? And you help them start to learn how to think clearly. So you don't, we don't have to carry the weight because they, the reality is they have to make their own decisions and they won't always be good ones. But that's better than somebody else making a decision for them. So I would say the best thing is to get us, you know, a, a mature women, small group who all have sort of different roles to play, and they can they can all interact. So if you're away on vacation, or you're this, or you're that, or tied up, or burdened with other things, there's somebody else who's filling that space. She ended up having the, the lion's share because she was the, the woman was living with her with their with her daughter. Um, but others stepped in and, and, and provided practical help and spiritual help. So, The one thing I'd add to that uh, is, is it's very important for helpers to lean heavily on Jesus. Mm-hmm. To, to realize that, that the burdens you are putting your shoulder under are not yours to bear in your own strength. And so, so praying regularly for the Lord to take from you what you've just heard, to, to not have what you're hearing affect how you view all men 
or how you view Mary. You know, just, just that, that regular leaning upon Christ is very important eventually for the, the, the person who's abused to get to, but even for those who are helping to be doing that regularly. And this is where we can't help as pastors. We can help you carry the burden right. of, of that so that you're coming and saying, listen, I just heard so much. I, don't, I can't even repeat it to you, Andy, but I just heard so much. And I can, you know, we can help you know, how do I, how do I transfer this to Christ? How do, I, how do I understand my true responsibility? How do I know when I have to just let something play out? Mm-hmm. Um, if you have somebody supporting you in your own decisions, it, it takes a lot of the weight off the fact that the next thing I do could be a disaster. Right. Um, so I think, again, as pastors, we're going to be much more effective helping people or, who are the uh, first responders, in a sense, than we are the people trying to be the first responders. Yeah, that's well said. Yes. So that's one of the questions I had down here. If y'all weren't yeah. going to ask the question, yeah. so that's good. The, uh, the question is, as we're counseling a couple as pastors, as we're working with a couple, if it becomes apparent to us that there's abuse happening in this marriage, but the, the, the wife doesn't see it uh, as, as abuse, what, what do we do? That's the question. I thought you were going to answer. Well, I'm asking the questions. <laughs> I'll chip in. And you do it very well. Yeah. <laughs> Just thinking a second. All right, I'll say this okay. while Mark's Good. thinking. I thought if I paused, you might jump. Uh, and, and this isn't to dodge your question because we're, we're going to get to some specifics. But uh, it really will vary from case to case. Uh, there's, there's these moments in counseling when you know you you've been in this scenario a thousand times you you know exactly what what they need to hear you know the passages and then there's scenarios when when you are just so at the end of your own wisdom and there are two people sitting in front of you waiting for the next thing you're going to say and you don't have anything or you you don't know exactly what to do there's a there's a dependence upon being spirit-led as pastors or counselors in that time and, uh, and it really will vary based on your relationship with them. What kind of equity do you have? How bad are you perceiving that it is or you think it is? Uh, <clears throat> is this your one shot? Are, are you never going to meet with them again? Are you in a longstanding relationship? These kind of things are all factors that go into determining what you may do next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah. I think it's interesting... Um, Couples can go to a counselor and, uh, and, and go a long time in marriage counseling without the issue of abuse coming up um, because what happens is the, uh, the negotiation has already happened about what can be talked about and what can't be talked about. And often there are, there are clues or that, that the abuser will give to the other person to make sure that they know, no, you can't talk about that or you can't say that. And so they'll be, so a good counselor is going to understand body language, is going to start to read it. But that, they can just not show up again. Right. If, you know, looking at us, if somebody is coming to my church 
and they're coming to me as a pastor, um, and they're both coming, and they're willing to come more and more, there really is a lot of hope for the marriage because it could be they're at the early stages or they're, there's controlling tendencies, but they haven't really gotten that far. And, I'm, you know, there could be other factors involved. Um, uh, I, I've seen situations where, where uh, I'll give just one, one, po- one aspect, um, where people get married from different cultures and it works out to a certain extent, but maybe the one culture is very patriarchal, and at some point that person begins to act on the patriarchal aspect of their culture in a way that redefines the relationship unilaterally. Is that abusive? Well, it, 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 it could be. It can be. It might be. But you can also help it divert away from that because, because it, may, it may be that... Uh, interesting, what, sometimes what happens is it happens when if there are boys that are growing up in the home and... Uh, husband begins to think, I need these boys to turn out a certain way, and so they begin to renegotiate the nature of the, of the marriage midterm. So, so that can be redeemed. That can be helped. Um, you, but you'll have situations where if somebody's coming to me, my job is to stretch that out as long as possible. Why? Because I want to create some confidence in the potential victim that I am there for them and they understand without me having to kind of directly say it. Um, they get, you know, and they're going to keep me coming here and then I'm going to get a bead on the guy. Hopefully I can have a relationship with him. So the, and, and begin to trust God that God's going to expose it. As long as they're coming to me, the opportunity for God to expose it in a redemptive environment is there. If I act on it too quickly, I drive them away. Then God's got to pursue them. And what's going to have to happen is going to happen not is it redemptively but correctively? So I always hope when somebody's with me, if I think it's happening, and there are things you can do as a pastor in counseling to tweak and 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 hold certain things out. Why don't you try this and start to get? You can get underneath it if they're coming to you. So that's kind of the goal, not to confront directly, but to kind of get to it indirectly. Yeah, the, the only thing I would I would add I would, I would agree if if they're willing to meet as a couple to keep meeting. I'm, I'm interested in how he's engaging that and is he willing to continue to come because, I don't know, she may have left, let's say, and then came back. And so he's agreed to meet with the pastor because it appeases her, it gets her back in the home. So is he just there kind of going through the motions or not? He, at some point, if he's doing that, he's going to bail earlier. He's not going to keep coming. So there's, there's things like that you're thinking about um, to try to get a read into uh, their relationship. So directly answering the question, it's going to occur to us in our minds long before we'd ever come out with anything like that. Uh, and it begins to inform the types of questions we may ask or, you know, our posture. But, uh, but again, it's, it's the long game and it's building trust for, uh, for the abuser and the abused in particular. The other thing you're looking for is potential mental illness that there's something going on in mental illness that is driving behavior mm-hmm. that really isn't entirely intentional. It's just, you know, uh, p- there, there are various ways people can struggle mentally and, and emotionally. That can res- uh, here's, an, here's a good ex- example of that. Um, a man has PTSD from the military. So he comes back home. He's, in a, he, re- he's re-engaging with his family, uh, but he has, you know, he has horrible... Uh, trauma in the middle of the night. I mean, 
one situation wasn't involved in this church, but where the man would wake up choking his wife, right, because of the PTSD. Now, that's abusive, right? But it's not intentional. And so they got help, and they had to create separate rooms, and he had to get help. And for a while, he had to move out until he got over the, the issue because the result was, even though it wasn't intentional, the effect was trauma on her. She couldn't sleep at night. She couldn't do. And so that's a case where you have, it's, it's abusive, but it, 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 it's, yeah. it's triggered by something else. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's where you have to be careful that you don't just sort of, he's just an evil man. There can be a lot going on there mm-hmm. that's driving behavior besides just intent. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. Yes. Before I repeat the question, do you mean like a perceived threat because we're men yeah. or, okay. Uh, so the, the, the question is, you know, as we're working with a couple and abuse becomes maybe a topic that comes up, is, is there a time when we might be perceived as unsafe to the victim, from the victim's perspective? I think you would say definitely that there's a risk of that yeah. for sure. Sure, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, when... A, when a man does marriage counseling, there are two, twice as many men in the room as women. And so you've always got to be accounting for the fact that I can't presume this woman, even if the marriage is good, I can't presume this woman can just, the way I'm relating to them, she's going to take away the same thing he will take away. And so I've got to be very conscious that I'm... I got to since compensate that I'm speaking in the presence of a woman, not just to a couple. And so I think in the case where there's potential abuse, you're doing it all the more. You got to recognize this is a highly threatening environment. It's an interesting thing for a woman because it's both, it can feel both secure and threatening at the same time. It's secure because we're in a a place where he can't play his tricks. But at the same time, I'm surrounded by men. And so, as, you know, if you're pastoring somebody who's in that situation, you're always very, very aware of the fact that she needs to feel safety. She needs to feel uh, heard. She needs to feel her voice. Probably what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help. Look, I'm going to honor your voice. If there's one place your voice is going to be heard, it's going to be in this room. That's right. And, and, and you know, if you want to correct me, correct me. If you want to say, and, I, and I'll explain that. So listen, if there's anything I say that you find troubling, it's very important for you to let me know that that didn't sit well with you. And if she does that, we can develop, develop a rapport where she's, she's coming at me. Then that's a good stuff. That's good stuff. Because that means she's gaining an agency, you know, with men, which is something that she's lost. So I think you have to cultivate that. Yeah, there is that, that power imbalance. Uh, it is is very important when you're providing care. It's very important to compensate for that as much as you can, so that everybody in the room, the, the, their voices are equally valued. Um, good. 
Good. All right. Let's let's end it there. We ran a little late, but you guys kept having questions. So, yeah. good uh, questions. And they're great questions. If you do have questions you didn't feel comfortable asking in this context, the three of us are happy to linger for a bit. Um, thank you for coming out. Yeah, let's uh, let's take a couple minutes to thank these guys for serving us. Yeah. And uh, let me close our time in prayer, if I could. Lord, these are incredibly weighty things, and there's not a set of shoulders in this room capable of bearing up underneath them without your strength and your grace. Lord, thank you for having shoulders that can come into situations like this and actually bring redemption and actually restore dignity and personhood and agency and value, self-perceived value. God, you are in the business of working where there's brokenness. And in these situations, there's profound brokenness. We do ask for those in the room that have endured this, we ask that tonight would not be an unsettling time, but a time when they get to revisit all the ways that you've already worked in their lives. And Lord, if if there are those in the room who come alongside those enduring this, would you give them strength and humility, strength to do what you call them to do and humility to leave to you what you've not called them to do? Ultimately, Lord, we ask you to, to act in justice on behalf of the oppressed and the abused in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming tonight.